All right, brave souls and easily spooked wanderers. Before we dive into the adult-themed chaos of Dark Enigma, here's your legal heads up. Our tales and banter might disturb, frighten, or even offend you. If you're the kind who faints at the sight of a dark shadow, well, this may not be your cup of eerie tea. Consider this your warning. Listener discretion is advised, and we will not be held responsible for any spilled coffee, dropped jaws, or overly dramatic gasps that may ensue. So, clutch your pearls at your own peril. So, buckle up, or don't, because I'm not your mom, and you've been warned. Greetings, my heathens, and step right up to the vortex of the peculiar and unexplained. This is Dark Enigma. And I am your ringmaster, Nicole Delacroix, here to guide you through tales of things that go bump in the night. Creatures that haunt your dreams, supernatural beings with more drama than your nosy neighbor, and a sprinkle of unsolved mysteries. So, buckle up, grab your beverage of choice, and prepare to be whisked away to the dark, delightful conundrum of today's episode. Let the weirdness commence as we dive into today's Dark Enigma. And on today's Dark Enigma, brace yourselves for a topic that tickles the paranormal fancy. Here we are, diving into the abyss of the mysterious, armed with our usual dose of sarcasm and a dash of dark humor. And of course, our drinking game, because we can't forget that, because let's face it, you're listening to a podcast and your social calendar is as full as a ghost's wardrobe. So round up your favorite spirits, be it a fancy wine or a trusty brew, and get ready to embark on a journey into the realms of the weird and the wacky. Take a swig every time you're mystified by the podcast's spellbinding tale, or equally spellbinding host. But remember, the choice of poison is entirely up to you. Choose wisely and let the laughter and libations flow. All right, now for the game part. How about every time I say Yule, that will be a single shot. And every time I say Christmas, that's going to be a double shot. All right, now that we have the business end out of the way, we can jump headfirst into today's Dark Enigma. So, don your very best jingle bells and maybe a Santa hat. As we dive into today's offering, and yes, I am going to sing it to you, today's offering of Deck the Halls with Frights and Phantoms. It's a Dark Enigma holiday special for you. Okay, that's enough singing because your ears are probably bleeding, but I appreciate that you listened. (laughs) Welcome, my Enigma enthusiasts. Today, we unwrap the enigmatic layers of the holiday season. And today... Our time machine takes us back to the very roots of Christmas, a time when elves were not wrapping presents, but running around in the woods. And Santa may have just been just a twinkle in St. Nicholas's eye. We're going to start by diving deep into the pagan winter solstice. That's right, the OG holiday celebration. The pagan winter solstice was the mother of all winter parties, where the ancient communities gathered to say, Hey son, we appreciate your hard work, but uh, could you stick around a little bit longer because it's kind of (laughs) cold. And by the way, my heat is not working, so it's kind of cold. Just saying. 
Think of it as the original Bring Back the Sun Festival. I can almost hear the chanting now. More sunlight, less frostbite. More sunlight, less frostbite. (laughs) All right. Well, let's talk traditions. Druids in flowing robes, dancing around Stonehenge. And no, it's not just a scene from my favorite fantasy novel. It is the original OG pagan winter solstice, baby. These folks know how to party with a purpose. Can't you just imagine a druid saying, Needs a Christmas tree when you have Stonehenge. And you know what? It's much easier to decorate. Just saying. One of the biggest highlights of the Pagan Winter Festival was the Yule Log. And no, I'm not talking about the YouTube channel with a fireplace video, but an actual log. Families would select a massive log, drag it into their homes, and burn it for 12 days straight. It's kind of like a prehistoric Netflix binge, but, you know, with more kindling and leaves. (laughs) And of course, gift giving was a thing but it wasn't the latest tech gadget or cozy socks. No, it was more like handmade trinkets and tokens of goodwill. Forget Black Friday madness. This was the original artisanal gifting. I made you a clay figurine of a mammoth. It's the thought that counts, right? (laughs) And the winter solstice feast was a feast fit for kings, queens, and perhaps a few mischievous elves. Long tables laden with roasted meats, fruits, and enough mead to put even the rowdiest Vikings in a festive stupor. Num, 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 num. Sounds good. Pass the mead and tell the minstrel to play Stairway to Valhalla for me. (laughs) As the winter solstice festivities reached their climax, our ancestors celebrated not only the changing of seasons, but also the spirit of togetherness. It was a time of merriment, reflection, and possibly a few failed attempts at Yule Log juggling. But who's counting, right? The pagan winter solstice, where Yule Logs were the stars of the show, elves were still in the wilderness, and holiday feasts put modern buffets to shame. Yum, yum, yum. Alright, now let's dive into the original winter celebration. Yule. Picture it. The frosty landscapes of ancient Norse lands where Vikings roamed free, and the only sleigh bells ringing were on the harnesses of dire wolves. Ah, yes, give me a strapping Viking any day of the week. Yum, yum, yum. I'm just saying. (laughs) Let's unwrap the enigmatic Yule celebration. Because it wasn't just a party. It was the party. The Norse folks looked at winter and said, let's make it it epic. Yule was all about celebrating the return of the sun, which, let's be honest, took more bravery than a Viking raid. I can hear them say it now. Forget hibernating. We're throwing a Yule bash that'll make Odin proud. That's right. Because, you know, we're all part Viking. Now, Yule wasn't just a one-night stand. No, it was a 12-day fiesta. Imagine an advent calendar, but each day had its own mead-filled surprise. On the first day of Yule, my true love gave to me a giant turkey leg and some ale, obviously. (laughs) Okay, that didn't quite fit into the song, but I like it better. Okay. Feasting during Yule was a legendary affair. 
It wasn't about counting calories. It was about counting the number of roasted beasts on the table. Long houses filled with Vikings devouring boar, venison, and enough mead to fill a fjord. Pass the mead horn and tell the skald to sing a tale of our epic feast, right? And again, the Yule Log was the star of the show. Families would choose that massive log, drag it into the home, burn it for the entirety of Yule. Why watch a Christmas carol when you can burn your own Yule Log and narrate your own epic saga, right? And the gift giving, again, wasn't about the fancy packaging or your Amazon wish list. It was about a handmade token of affection and, well, probably a few well-crafted battle axes. I will whittle you a wooden mug. Don't say I never gave you anything. Now, there was a curious tradition called the Yule Goat. Yeah, go ahead, start laughing now because I, like, could not control myself. I was giggling so much. So, the Yule Goat was not Santa's helper, but rather a festive symbol of fertility and harvest. I bet you won't find that one on a Christmas carol, will ya? Our Yule Goat is so metal it puts Rudolph to shame! <laughs> As Yule festivities reached their peak, the Norse folk celebrated not just the changing of seasons, but the spirit of camaraderie, feasting, and perhaps a friendly game of Viking chess. Okay, more like throwing axes. Yule, where the feasts were grand, the mead flowed like rivers, and the Yule log burned brighter than a dragon's breath. All right, next we're delving into the Roman revelry that was the Bacchanalian precursor to Christmas, Saturnalia. And you thought the Big Bang Theory made that one up. Nope, Sheldon was on the money with that one. So close your eyes, unless you're driving again. Keep your eyes open if you're driving. And imagine ancient Rome, where togas were the trendiest fashion statement, and every day was Toga Tuesday. <laughs> now imagine they decide to throw a party that made, well, frat houses look like book clubs. That, my friends, is Saturnalia in a nutshell. Because Saturnalia wasn't just a holiday, it was a week-long extravaganza dedicated to Saturn, the god of agriculture. Romans looked at winter and thought, ha, let's turn this season of gloom into the season of, whoa, is that a chariot race in my living room? Hail Saturn! Let the festivities begin, and may the gods bless us with more wine than water. Yeah, that was babbling, but okay. So imagine a seven-day festival where all societal norms were tossed out the window. Slaves became masters, masters became slaves, and everyone agreed that togas were the ultimate fashion choice. It was the original upside-down world. I can just picture a Roman elite saying, So my chariot driver gets to order me around today. This should be rather interesting. I don't know why I went with British. It's Roman, but whatever. Alright, so let's talk about Saturnalian gift-giving. Forget the stress of finding the perfect present. Romans exchanged small trinkets called sigillaria. It's like a secret Santa, but with more wine and a lot less fruitcake. <laughs> Imagine unwrapping your gift and finding a clay figurine. Oh, how thoughtful. Another miniature coliseum, just because I don't have 500 of those already. Thanks. And what's a Roman festival without a feast? Oy. During Saturnalia, gluttony reached epic proportions. It was like Thanksgiving dinner on performance-enhancing laurel leaves. 
Is this wine glass ever going to empty Jupiter's beard? Refill it, slave. I've got another six days of revelry ahead. One of the quirkiest traditions during Saturnalia was the role reversal. Slaves became masters and masters became slaves. It was like a true-to-life Freaky Friday, but with more grape stomping and fewer heartfelt life lessons. So, Marcus, about those chariot races I ordered you to organize, I was thinking instead we could swap roles for a day. Thoughts? (laughs) As Saturnalia came to a close, the Romans must have been nursing colossal hangovers, wearing laurel wreaths as crowns, and wondering how in Hades they were going to explain all of this to their spouses. Saturnalia were the only thing tighter than a toga was the embrace of celebration. (laughs) Alright, we're going to switch gears for just a minute and dive deep into the shadows of the sinister spruce and the roots of pagan tree worship. Dom, dom, dom. Okay, i got to throw some drama in there somewhere. Close your eyes, again if you're driving, don't. And imagine a world where trees weren't just fancy oxygen factories, but sacred symbols of mystical reverence. Now, open your eyes because, well, this is a podcast and for some reason you need your eyes open to keep listening. I don't know why, but okay. But let's explore how the humble spruce became the star of the festive show. Pagan tree worship wasn't about decorating a tree with baubles. It was about paying homage to the spirits dwelling within the tree. Ancient cultures believed that trees housed divine entities. So when winter rolled around, they said, let's spruce things up. That's right, the original dad joke. Because <laughs> it's a spruce, get it? Okay, never mind. Let's not just have a tree in the living room. Let's invite a woodland spirit to the holiday party. See, the Druids, they were the hipsters of ancient times. They didn't just hug the trees, they worshipped them. Trees, especially evergreens, symbolized immortality and the enduring spirit of life during harsh winters. Just imagine your hipster druid saying, Yeah, we know that winter is bleak, but look at this evergreen. It's like nature's way of saying, Chin up, dude, the sun will be back. I know I totally have the hipster thing down, right? Okay. Of course, the Romans had to get in on the arboreal action. They decked their halls with boughs of holly and evergreen branches during Saturnalia as well. Because what says Bacchanalian revelry better than a festive fur, right? Forget the laurel wreaths this year, James. I'm decorating the villa with pine cones and mistletoe. Then we fast forward to the Germanic tribes, where they took tree worship to the next level. They believed the spirits residing in the trees protected them. So when Yuletide rolled around, they brought the whole tree indoors. Yeah, it's a bit unconventional, but nothing says festive like a tree in the living room. Let's call it an evergreen statement piece. I don't know why I sound Swedish instead of German, but okay. Whatever. As Christianity spread, it had its own revolution, if you will. Early Christians weren't exactly tree huggers, but they adapted the pagan traditions to make Christmas more palatable to the masses. And thus, the Christmas tree was born. Let's uh, keep the tree, but lose those nature spirits. We'll call it a Christmas conifer. Has a nice ring to it, don't you think? 
Yep, the sinister spruce and the pagan tree worship, where trees were more than just lumber. They were conduits to the divine, symbols of life in the face of winter's chill. All right, next on our agenda, oh, you guys are gonna love it. We're diving into the realm of mischief and merriment with the Yule Lads. That's right, Santa's mischievous cousins, and I'm not joking. Imagine a Christmas where the biggest worry wasn't if you'd get a lump of coal, but rather if a mischievous creature was plotting antics in your pantry. (laughs) Today, we're exploring the Yule Lads, the pranksters of Icelandic folklore. And spoiler alert, I'm going to be butchering the Icelandic, so yeah, don't even bother sending me an email because it's going to suck. So I'm going to do my best though. So the Yule Lads aren't your typical holiday helpers. They're more like Santa's cheeky cousins. (laughs) And I like them. These 13 mischievous characters hail from Icelandic folklore, each with their own peculiar set of antics. Because who needs elves when you have Yule Lads causing chaos in the name of holiday cheer, right? The Yule Lads are like a festive version of the Seven Dwarfs. Except for there's 13 of them, and if the dwarfs were on like a perpetual sugar rush, maybe. Okay, not like the Seven Dwarfs. Whatever. They come down from the mountain, one by one, each with a name and a unique knack for holiday havoc. Ah, yes, the Yule Lads are in town. Time to lock up the spoons, because apparently they're notorious for stealing spoons. So let's meet just a few of these Yuletide rascals. And again, I'm going to butcher the names. I'm going to try. There's Stick Justor, known for harassing the sheep. I'm just going to say he's probably the worst. Maybe not. And then there's Gatepufer. The Yule Lad who's got a thing for sniffing out the aroma of fresh-baked goodies. I bet Mrs. Claus is grateful she doesn't have to deal with him. But is that where we actually get cookies from? Hmm, maybe. But it's not all harmless hijinks. Take Scar Gromar, for example, who has a penchant for curdling the milk. Imagine waking up and you're just thinking, hmm, I'm going to have me some cereal plans, and your plans are foiled by a Yule Lad. Not again, Scrymagar. This is why we can't have nice things. (laughs) Anyways, what's fascinating is that these lads aren't just mythical troublemakers. They're part of Icelandic holiday tradition. Families often leave shoes on the windowsills for Yule lads to fill with small gifts or, if you've been naughty, potatoes. Because, you know, if you're naughty, you get potatoes. Just saying. French fries. Not such a bad thing. In modern times, the Yule Lads have become more mischievous than malevolent, delighting in spreading holiday cheer with their antics. In Reykjavik, you'll even find a Yule Lads village, where these mythical pranksters come to life during the holiday season. Yep, came for the Northern Lights, but I stayed for the Yule Lads. They're like the rock stars of Icelandic folklore. Just saying. And you know I love my Icelandic people. They just had another volcano erupt. So, you know what? Let's pray for the Icelandic people for a moment. Okay, that's enough. All right. Now let's check out some romantic mysteries of mistletoe and druidic romance. Yeah, I'm just trying to throw some drama in here somewhere. Okay. Picture a holiday season where love wasn't just in the air, but literally hanging above your head. 
Yeah, I know. Why am I sounding like a movie trailer? Okay. Let's explore the botanical matchmaker, mistletoe, and its roots in druidic romance. Mistletoe wasn't always a sprig of green lazily hanging in your doorway. It was once a potent symbol of love and fertility for ancient cultures. The druids, those ancient nature-loving mystics, revered mistletoe for its seemingly magical properties. Forget tender, we got mistletoe. Swipe right for love, swipe left for more herbal remedies. <laughs> druids believed mistletoes held mystical powers. During the winter solstice, the chief druid would climb the sacred oak tree, cut the mistletoe with a golden sickle, and then let it fall onto a white cloth held by the other druids. It was like the world's first romantic drive through Now, Norse mythology also had a mistletoe moment. Enter the story of Baldur, the beloved god of light and son of Odin. And he had a little bit of an Achilles heel, mistletoe. Loki, the Norse trickster, exploited this weakness, leading to a mistletoe mishap that resulted in Baldur's demise. Really great story. Go read it. I'm not going to tell you about it. Fast forward to the Renaissance. Mistletoe made its way into European homes as a symbol of love and goodwill. So when you found yourself beneath the, whistle, the mistletoe, you had a choice. A kiss or the awkwardness of dodging affection. Okay, so really pretty much the same as it is now. But choose wisely, my friend. Mistletoe is nature's way of saying, time to make that move. The Victorians, those masters of romanticizing everything, brought mistletoe into the Christmas tradition. It became a staple at holiday gatherings, turning parlors into potential love nests. Today, mistletoe is less about druidic rituals and more about office holiday parties. It's the botanical wingman, encouraging hesitant co-workers to engage in a festive smooch. Ah, the mistletoe dilemma, to kiss or not to kiss. That is the awkward question. And by the way, the answer is always not to kiss, especially at an office party. Okay, now let's dive into the festive sock saga. And why do we hang our stockings and the legend of St. Nicholas? So picture a time when stockings weren't just for keeping our toes toasty, but were the key to unlocking holiday surprises. Today, we're delving into the legendary antics of St. Nicholas and the peculiar tradition of hanging stockings. Before St. Nick became the jolly fellow that we know today, he was a 4th century bishop in what is now Turkey. Legend has it, he was the Robin Hood of bishops, secretly delivering gifts to those in need. Basically, he is who the original Santa Claus is based off of. One famous tale involves a destitute man with three daughters. St. Nicholas, hearing of their struggles, decided to help in the most covert way possible. He tossed bags of gold coins through the window, landing conveniently in the stockings. Either we hit the jackpot or St. Nick has taken up moonlining as a small-time burglar. Over time, the tale evolved. People began to mimic the generous gesture by hanging stockings, hoping for a surprise visit from St. Nicholas himself. Today, stockings have become the unsung heroes of Christmas morning, filled with small treasures, trinkets, and occasionally that mysterious orange that somehow always ends up at the toe. As Doctor Who says, ah, that one set suma at the bottom of the Christmas stocking. 
Ah, the annual How Did an Orange End Up in My Stocking Mystery. It's as classic as fruitcake. The tradition of hanging stockings has taken various forms across cultures. In Italy, children leave out their shoes for St. Nicholas to fill. In France, it's the shoes too, but with a dash of hay for the donkey that carries St. Nick. Interesting. Now we're embarking on a sleigh ride through the snow-draped hills of Santa Claus. Both the real and the fantastical. Imagine a world where the man in red isn't just a Coca-Cola mascot, but a historical figure shrouded in fact and fiction. Today, I unwrap the legend of the real Santa Claus. Let's start with that real deal, St. Nicholas, the 4th century bishop from Myra, modern-day Turkey. This guy wasn't just a kindly old soul. He was a gift-giving ninja, anonymously leaving bags of gold for those in need. Hear ye, hear ye, St. Nicholas is on the loose again, spreading generosity like confetti at a Roman chariot race. As tales of St. Nicholas spread through Europe, different cultures gave him a makeover. In Dutch folklore, he became Sinterklaas, arriving on a steamboat with his mischievous sidekick, Black Peter. Seems St. Nick had a penchant for globetrotting even before Amazon Prime. Santa Claus, do you have any custom fees for that steamboat delivery? I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> now let's talk about the jolly old Santa that we know today. The Coca-Cola company did not invent him, as many people are sad to learn. But they certainly did give him a Hollywood-style makeover. In the 1930s, Coca-Cola commissioned artist Hayden Sundblom to create a series of illustrations featuring a plump, rosy-cheeked Santa enjoying a Coca-Cola. Around the world, Santa has his own unique variations. In Iceland, there's the Yule Lad's less mischievous co- cousin, Jola's Vinyar. Yeah, yeah, there's like no vowels in that. Meanwhile, in Italy, the gift giver isn't a saint, but a witch named La Befana. La Befana, I wanted a PlayStation, not a broomstick. Are you sure you got the right letter there? Okay. All right, now let's tackle the North, the North Pole workshop. The idea of Santa's elves crafting toys is more modern fiction than ancient fact. The original St. Nicholas didn't have a team of pointy-eared assistants. He had to rely on good old human craftsmanship. Elves? No, we had artisans and apprentices. Pointy ears are optional, though. Now we're peering into the dark side of the holiday with my favorite, Krampus. Santa's dark sidekick. Dun, dun, dun. I really should have some like heavy metal music there, right? <sighs> Maybe. Who knows? Christmas, where coal in your stocking isn't the worst punishment. Nope. We're diving into the legendary antics of Krampus, the anti-Santa, with a penchant for the naughty list management. Krampus isn't your typical holiday helper. He's more like the Grinch with a stronger commitment to discipline, if you will. This horned creature hails from alpine folklore, and he's Santa's less forgiving counterpart. And thus Krampus was born, the ultimate yuletide party pooper. (laughs) Krampus is a sight to behold. A demonic figure with fur, hooves, horns, and a long, sinister tongue. Forget the milk and cookies. Krampus preferred a side of terror with his Christmas cheer. Mom, is that Santa's dark sidekick or a lost member of the Kiss Band? (laughs) 
In Alpine regions, particularly Austria and Germany, there's a tradition called Krampusnacht, or Krampus Night. On the evening of December the 5th, people dress up as Krampus and parade through the streets, spreading fear faster than holiday cheer. But Krampus isn't just for show. He really does have a job to do. Legend has it he punishes naughty children by swatting them with birch branches or, in extreme cases, tossing them into his sack and carrying them off to his lair. One of the most fascinating traditions is the Krampus Loaf, a parade where revelers don Krampus costumes complete with terrifying masks and elaborate costumes. It's like Halloween and Christmas collided in a dark alley. That's right. My favorite holiday, Halloween, colliding with Christmas. Can't be any better. I came for the Christmas markets, but I stayed for the nightmare fuel. Krampus, can I get an autograph? <laughs> In recent years, Krampus has become a cultural phenomenon. You can find Krampus-themed events, greeting cards, and yes, even horror movies. He's like the unexpected guest who overstays his welcome, but in a strangely delightful way. <laughs> Lastly, we're diving into the world of Victorian ghost stories, haunting tales by the fireside. So imagine a Christmas where the only things that go bump in the night are the characters and ghost stories told by the flickering fireside. Today we're going to explore the eerie elegance of Victorian ghost tales. The Victorian era was a time of corsets, top hats, and a fondness for the macabre. As winter nights grew longer, the Victorians sought thrills not from Netflix, but from ghost stories told by the warmth of the fireside. Move over, Charles Dickens. We need more ghosts and fewer Tiny Tims in our holiday tales. The tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas wasn't just a way to scare the children, although that is definitely a bonus. It was a reflection of the Victorians' fascination with the supernatural, a sentiment that seeped into their literature. Children, gather round. It's time for a festive tale that'll make your nightcap stand on end. One cannot explore Victorian ghost stories without tipping their top hat to the grandmaster of the genre, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. It is the quintessential example, blending festive cheer with spectral scares. But Dickens wasn't the only one weaving spectral narratives. M.R. James, Sheridan Le Fanu, and Elizabeth Gaskell penned tales that sent shivers down corseted spines. From haunted portraits to vengeful apparitions, the Victorians knew how to turn a cozy fireside chat into a bone-chilling experience. Move over, Jane Austen. We need more hauntings and fewer courtship dramas. The Victorian obsession with the supernatural extended beyond tales of terror. Seances and spiritualisms were all the rage with many attempting to contact the dearly departed during holiday gatherings. The legacy of Victorian ghost stories continues to influence our perception of Christmas. From eerie adaptations of classic tales to the timeless tradition of gathering around the fire with a spine-tingling story, the Victorians left an indelible mark on our festive frights. Let's keep the tradition alive. More ghosts, less sleigh bells. It's the Victorian way. Somebody get me a corset. Now, we're going to recap the holiday odyssey that we've undertaken. In our first story, we donned our druidic coat 
and ventured into the pagan winter solstice, where ancient cultures celebrated the rebirth of the sun and reveled in evergreen symbolism. The Druids, those tree-hugging trendsetters, believed in nature spirits, and the Romans decorated with the finesse festive hedonists. Then we ventured into the frosty territory of Yule, discovering the roots of the season celebration in Germanic traditions. Imagine a Germanic warrior saying, yes, it's a bit unconventional, but nothing says festive like a tree in the living room. Let's just call it a statement piece. Next up, we tiptoed into the raucous revelry of Saturnalia, where Romans partied hard enough to make frat houses blush. Picture your Romans saying, forget the laurel reefs this year. I'm decorating the villa with pine cones and mistletoe and drag a tree. From there, we explored the sinister spruce and pagan tree worship, tracing the roots of our modern Christmas tree to Druidic traditions, Roman influence, and Germanic tree enthusiasts. Yes, we know the winter is bleak, but you know what? We've got an evergreen, so what up? We then hung our stockings with care as we delved into why we hang the stockings and the legend of St. Nicholas. St. Nick, the 4th century gift ninja, delivered gold instead of gadgets and set the stage for our modern-day stocking-stuffing traditions. Ah, that mistletoe dilemma, to kiss or not to kiss. In our last story, we separated fact from fiction in the real Santa Claus. We journeyed through the snowy landscapes of St. Nick's origins, his makeover into Sinterklaas, and the Coca-Cola-inspired transformation into the plump, jolly figure that we know today. Lastly, we imagined a Victorian lady saying, What's that, dearest? Oh, just a bit of mistletoe strategically placed for our romantic convenience. Then the shadows grew a little bit darker as we uncovered Krampus, Santa's dark sidekick. The horned creature from Alpine Alpine folklore made coal and stockings seem like a charming inconvenience. Lastly, we donned our top hats and corsets for Victorian ghost stories, some haunting tales by the fireside. The Victorians, masters of the macabre, delighted in tales that sent shivers down the spine. And, since it's the Victorian way, and next week, since Tuesday will be the day after Christmas, I have a very special episode planned. Spoilers! It's Victorian, and it might be spooky. Tune in to find out. As we tiptoe out of this merry maze, let me gift you a quote that sums up our journey. Navigating the ghosts of Christmas Pass is like a whimsical dance. Just be grateful they haven't upgraded their currency to fruitcake. The ultimate holiday haunting. Dum dum dum. <laughs> and here we are, folks, at the eerie end of another Dark Enigma escapade. Thanks for hanging in there with me through the twists and turns of the paranormal playground. Before you slip back into the mundane realm, let those supernatural thoughts swirl like a ghostly apparition. Reach out to me, your fearless paranormal navigator, at darkenigmapodcast at gmail.com. You got ideas for future episodes, or you just want to swap a spooky story? I'm all ears, and I respond faster than a cryptid vanishing into the night. This is Dark Enigma, signing off from the cryptic corridors of Renegade Talk Radio. Until our wavelengths cross again, keep those ghost detectors charged, and beware of things that go bump in the night. Stay enigmatic, my spectral sidekicks, and remember, the real mystery is how I manage to make every exit sound like a plot twist. Catch you on the flip side. See you, my heathens. I love ya. We don't.
sugarcoat shit. This is Renegade Talk Radio. Renegade Talk Radio.